Let's pray. Father, what a gift uh, that you not only accept our questions and our wrestling, but you give us words to do it uh, in, in your word through Habakkuk. God, you give us the words of lament that we, that we need and can't often articulate. So God, by your spirit, open up your word to us this morning in Habakkuk. Help us to, to see and hear and know what it is you're telling us through your word. And help us to grasp that together as a congregation of people uh, who follow your son Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastor on staff, and I'm, I'm thankful you braved the, the cold this morning and made it in. Um, I had several people come up and say, where's the coat rack? And I thought, I don't, didn't think we would need it before Thanksgiving, but we do. So here we are. Hopefully next week we have that for you guys. Um, now, kind of what Randy said, we're, we're in the book of Habakkuk, uh, not a common book uh, to kind of read or know or study. And we, we basically said this is a book in many ways for people who are questioning God. Not, not questioning whether or not he exists, but, but what is he up to? God, what are you doing? And there isn't a person, I think, in, in the world that has not asked some version of that question in one way or another. Why is the world the way that it is? Isn't there someone out there, someone powerful enough to make a difference and to right the wrongs that we see and that we feel? And, and if they are there, why aren't they doing anything? And we're all confronted at one point or another in our lives by the contradiction between the way we think the world should be and the way the world actually is. Could God do anything about it? Is he doing anything? And Habakkuk is a powerful picture for Christians today of how to deal with that tension. How do we continue to trust God who says he is all-powerful in a world that feels completely out of control and chaotic and often very painful? How do we do that? Well, for Habakkuk, his, his questions, his tension primarily revolved around his nation, Israel. And, and so last week, Tom taught us uh, Habakkuk's real confusion begins because he sees the wicked prospering in his own country. That's where his complaint begins. Judah has lost her way. The people don't follow God the way they should. Their leaders are failing. There's corruption is rampant. And, and this is how Habakkuk puts it in chapter one. He says, the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. God, why aren't you doing anything about this? And if you remember, God responds in chapter one and basically says this. He says, Habakkuk, I'm not doing nothing. I'm sending the Babylonians, that great and terrible people, to the east of you. And they're going to come up and they're going to completely destroy Jerusalem as judgment against the nation. That's what God says. And Babylon, by the way, is just about the most evil nation you can imagine. We'll talk more about it later. They swept through the ancient world and destroyed entire people groups. Habakkuk hears this response from God, and he, this is what he says in chapter 1. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now I know this is Hebrew poetry, and so I'm getting a lot of like, I'm in high school reading Shakespeare looks out there. So I, let, me, let me help. This, here is basically Habakkuk's struggle, okay? Habakkuk asked God to help his country be freed 
from corruption and idolatry. And in his mind, I don't know, he thought maybe a new king, maybe a spiritual revival of some kind, something like that, God. And God replies, no, 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 I'm not going to do those things. I'm going to send the most evil nation around to come and destroy the country and take all the survivors into exile, which is eventually what happens. And Habakkuk is like, on what planet is that a good idea? Why, why is this? God, you cannot stand evil. I know you. Yet you'll use the Babylonians against us. Habakkuk is completely blown away by this response. And so we left him last week. If you're here, he's waiting. He's waiting on the watchtower for God's response. He's waiting for God's explanation of what he's doing. He's waiting for God to do something, for God to do anything. And eventually, God does show up. That's chapter 2. God does respond. And God says, in a nutshell, here's what he says. He says, Habakkuk, wait for it. If my answer seems slow, if my presence seems inadequate, if my power seems absent, wait. Wait. And that is not an easy word, is it? We can hardly wait for anything. And I I know it's almost cliche at this point to say our society is an impatient one. It's like everybody knows that, but it's just so true. You can't, it's unavoidable. The longest we tend to wait is three to five business days for shipping, right? And that's only because you're too cheap to pay for Amazon Prime and you can get it faster. (laughs) Okay, and that's just the small stuff that we don't want to wait for. What about big stuff? What about when your, your spouse is sick, they're dying? What about... Uh, when your kid is chronically ill and you don't know how to help anymore? What about when you lose your job and you don't know where the next one's going to come? What about waiting on the violence in the world to end? You're just watching the news and the, the genocide in the Middle East. And what about the people we love caught in addiction and they won't listen to you anymore? What about suicide and death and pain and suffering? What about those things? Because God says to those in one way or another, he says, if it seems slow, if I seem slow, Wait for me. But is that enough? Is it enough for me? Is it enough for you? Can we live in the waiting as Habakkuk is called to do? Well, let's find out. To survive in the waiting and to keep faith in the waiting, we need to believe three things. At least three things that God reminds Habakkuk in chapter 2 that we need to be reminded of as well. And the first is this. We must believe that God, though he may seem slow, he is not inactive. He may seem slow, but he's not inactive. And listen, God knows, this is helpful, God knows that he's slow. He knows, at least from our perspective. He says so in verse 2, we just read it. He says, and the Lord answered me, for still the vision, that, and, and by vision that means God's plan to make it right, God's ultimate plan. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. But if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. And then he he goes on. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up and, and his there is Babylon. Behold, his Babylon's soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And God says, I know it's slower than you want, But the righteous ones live by faith. That is, they live in the waiting on me. The righteous trust him above all others and his timing. And his timing. And that's the really difficult part, isn't it? 
It certainly was for Habakkuk. As far as we can tell, Habakkuk needed to wait another 15 years or so for Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, which he was not looking forward to. And then another 47 years or so for Babylon to be destroyed, which means on the slim chance that Habakkuk survived the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, and we don't even know if he did that, there's an even slimmer chance he'd actually live long enough to see God do something about it in 539. Okay, that must have seemed slow to Habakkuk. 60 plus years of waiting if he didn't die in the meantime, waiting for God to make good on his promise to set things right. But that is what God calls him to. If it seems slow, wait. The righteous live by faith. And faith, in many ways, if you've experienced it at all, means waiting. Faith means waiting. In other words, faith means letting God control the clock. Let him hold the clock. It's his job. Which when you think about it, is, is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. It's difficult to understand the timing of an eternal being, isn't it? Someone outside of time. And yet that is what we're called to do. And in fact, that is what God calls many of the characters in the Bible to do. And, and kind of the prime example is, is Abraham and Sarah. God looks at Abraham and Sarah and he says, I'm going to make you the parents of a mighty nation. That's the promise he makes to them. But let me translate for you what that actually looked like in their lives. Translation is, okay, you're now 90 years old. Here's one child. Fulfillment and timing are very different for God than they are for us. And we see this in the New Testament too, where, where Peter says in, in his letter that we call Second Peter in chapter 3, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And bless his heart, Peter's trying to be helpful. And in a sense he is. He's saying, <laughs> he's saying God's, God's slowness does not mean he's not working, and we have to remember that. But what makes faith so hard is sometimes is the related truth, which is that for us, a thousand years is pretty much just a thousand years. And that's a long time. That's a long time to wait. Letting God hold the clock like that is scary. Because here's the thing. My hunch is that many of you here today, most of you, trust God to come through for you. We believe he's good and loving, that he has a master plan, and that in the end it'll be great. We really trust God for the what, but it's trusting him for the when that's so hard. Trusting his when more than our when. And I'm going to let you in on a secret here. If the Bible and if Habakkuk tells us anything about God's timing in general, then most of the time God's when will not make sense to us in the moment. It's very confusing. It just is. It's hard enough to wait, isn't it? But to wait and to not know why is even harder. What possible reason would compel God to ask me to wait for this? So how do we do that? How do we let him hold the clock? Well, the image of the watchtower in Habakkuk is helpful. It's unique to him as well. It's, it's, it's a helpful metaphor for the Christian life. Remember, Habakkuk says in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And in the ancient world, uh, you built towers on the walls of your city to get perspective on what was out there. You had a higher vantage point to see bad weather approaching, to see approaching armies, uh, to see pretty much anything that would be hard to see on the ground. That's why you built the tower. And spiritually speaking, Habakkuk teaches us to get in the tower. 
to get perspective on what God is doing and on his timing. In other words, it becomes much easier to wait, not by getting God to agree with your plans, (laughs) but by growing in your ability to trust his. God, what you're doing here is much bigger than I am. And when you get in the tower by reading his word, you understand, you begin to understand the universal and cosmic story of what God is doing in the Bible. As well as God's intimate care for you individually. Both of those are in scripture. And then you begin to get a sense of the bigness of what God is up to. And it may not help you feel less confused. But it helps us to trust that there is a good reason even if we do not know what it is yet. And it will seem slow. Nine times out of ten, it will seem slow. But when it seems slow, wait for it. Get in the tower, get perspective, and let God hold the clock. Okay, that's number one. The second thing that we learn, we must believe and hold in the midst of waiting is this. God may seem unjust, but he will make it right. God may seem unjust, but he will make it right. And most of chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 20, which we didn't read, are woes of judgment against Babylon. These are promises of God to judge the Babylonians for all the evil that they've done. And the reason that is so relevant to Habakkuk and to the people of Israel is because Babylon is so evil. And Habakkuk wrestled with the justice of God using an instrument like Babylon. That's really the heart of his struggle. And I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. Babylon is really, really bad. It was a kingdom that made its own justice. Their own strength was their God. They worshipped idols that demanded human sacrifice when they destroyed a city. They murdered men, women, children, livestock, everything. They raped and they pillaged. They tortured their victims and they considered it an act of worship as a testimony to their own greatness. That's who we're talking about. And when Babylon took Jerusalem, they did it by besieging the city and they cut off supplies of food and water. And after they destroyed the city, the prophet Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, described what it was like during the invasion in the book of Lamentations. That's what that whole book is about. Chapter 2, he says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns and my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and where is wine? And they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And it feels unjust for God to allow this kind of thing to happen. But he says to the Babylonians here in Habakkuk, verses 6 and 8, he says, Woe to Babylon, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. And then verses 9 and 10, Woe to him who gets evil gain to be safe from the reach of harm. You have forfeited your life. And verses 12 and 16, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory, and the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. And in Daniel 5, uh, it tells the story. Daniel was written during the exile, so this is a crazy story. Uh, the, the, the Jews have been exiled to Babylon. They're at the height of their power in, in 539 B.C. The Babylonians are throwing a party for themselves for how awesome they are, basically, is the idea. 
And when suddenly in the middle of this, of this uh, party, this, this human hand appears in the middle and starts writing on the wall. I told you it was weird. Um, and basically the handwriting on the wall was, you know, Babylon is finished. That's where we get our phrase, by the way, that the, the handwriting was on the wall. And the king was murdered that very night. And in an instant, the entire empire crumbles. God will judge the wicked. And it was easier for Habakkuk and for Israel to see that judgment as good news. That, that's the idea in chapter 2 for Habakkuk is, hey, God's saying, hey, it's good news. I'm going to judge the Babylonians. But that's sometimes hard for us to receive in our, in our cultural context. Uh, even as terrible as Babylon was in our culture, I think we sometimes struggle with this concept of God's judgment and seeing that as a good thing. And, and Miroslav Volf, who is a, a Yale professor, Christian uh, ethicist, uh, he survived the genocide in Bosnia. So he sees this issue from a very different cultural place than we, than we do. And he says belief in a God who does not judge evil is only possible in the quiet of a suburban home. Tragic events like what is happening in Iraq right now, what happened in Rwanda, and that list could go on and on throughout history, remind us that we are often just as so insulated from real, true evil. But as, as Wolf says, he says, in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, for people who have watched their children be raped and murdered, how can they, be, how can they not believe in a God who judges evil? They must. And that's where Habakkuk is. And this is probably too silly for such a heavy subject, but if you know me at all, this won't surprise you. Um, I could resist. The great theologian Gary Larson, he sums it up well. Um, the chickens here, right? The tree falls on the farmer and the chickens say, Lord, we thank thee. Um, <laughs> you see, we cringe at the idea of God's judgment uh, because we don't sense someone behind us with an ax. <laughs> but for the majority of people, Living in fear and oppression, belief in God's judgment is the only source of hope. From the bully to the human trafficker, from the person who oppresses the poor to the people who are killing our brothers and sisters all around the world, Wolf even takes it a step further and he says this, he says, belief in a God of judgment is the only thing preventing these oppressed Christians from retaliating. That makes forgiveness and reconciliation even remotely possible. The only thing that stops this endless cycle of vengeance is the belief that God, in his time, will make it right. So faith means letting God be the judge. You have to let God be the judge. Which, at the very least, means allowing God to use things in our lives that we would prefer he did not. Hard things, inexplicable things, things like Babylon that just don't make sense on paper. And we feel this when we pray for things that we know are a part of God's ultimate plan. Heal this person, redeem this person, save my marriage, free him or her from addiction or from depression or from mental illness. Father, just don't, don't let the diagnosis be cancer. Father, I can't lose my job this week. You know my family can't handle that right now. We pray these things and we've all prayed those things because we know that cancer and death and sickness and unemployment and addiction and mental disorders, all that junk is not a part of God's ultimate plan. And, and yet, sometimes, God doesn't answer them the way we think he will. And we're left with a choice in those moments. And this is, this is part of what Habakkuk is trying to tell us. 
we can abandon God. We can call him a liar. We can call him unjust. We can call him unfair. We can turn our back on him. Or we can let God be the judge. And when we don't get what we want, and when we don't understand why, we let God be the judge. Because God may send Babylon. It's not our choice. It's not our job. Let God be the judge, because he will make it right. That's the promise. And letting God be the judge also means taking God's judgment seriously, which is something I think we struggle to do. Have we thought about where we stand in relation to God's judgment? That's not a fun question. It's not a popular question, but it's one this text demands that we ask. And, and I mean, I hate to say this, but if we don't really consider it, we may leave with more in common with Babylon in this story than we do with Israel. Do we hoard our wealth at the expense of the less fortunate? Do we worship our own strength as individuals or even our nation? Do we create a, a false sense of security like the Babylonians did? Do we look to the government to save us, the right, just the right person in office? Do we put our hope in those things? Have we built nothing on the blood of others? I know we're nearing Thanksgiving, but let's not romanticize the relationship between our ancestors and the people whose land this was and the slavery that this, that this country was built on for hundreds of years. Those are facts. How have we contributed to things like racism and preferential treatment and injustice? These are serious, important things to God. They are all throughout the Bible. He takes these things very seriously, and we have to take God's justice seriously. And we must never forget, this is an important lesson of Habakkuk, that God may choose a person, he may choose an institution, he may choose a nation, but don't think for a moment that that justifies the person or the nation. God used Babylon. Not good people. They replaced the Assyrians, who were also not good people. And the Persians replaced them, and, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Don't believe for a moment that we are somehow safe from God's judgment apart from Christ. And there is security in Christ for the one who believes. But only on the other side of taking God's judgment seriously. So letting God be the judge means taking, um, taking his judgment seriously, but it also means, in a, in a, not in a paradoxical way, but it also means letting God be merciful. Letting God be the judge means letting him be merciful. And very often, God's delay in answering prayers for justice is because of his mercy. And you see this in Second Peter again. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let God be the judge. God could have judged, for example, the Babylonians much more harshly than what he did. He could have wiped them off the face of the planet. Instead, he waited. And now there's a thriving, beautiful church in modern-day Iraq. God's judgment is often delayed for mercy's sake. God is more just and more merciful than we would ever be with his power. So when his justice seems slow, wait for it. It's coming. And here's the final thing, the final thing we learn. The final thing we have to remember to believe in God as we wait. And it's this, God may seem powerless, but he is in complete control. He may seem powerless, but he is in control. And in the midst of the chaos and the evil and the injustices of our world, God is in control. 
And Habakkuk models this kind of faith well. Notice in all his lament and in all his complaint, he never says, why is this happening? Instead, he says, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Do you see the difference between those two questions? The first one is whining. The second one is faith. Everything in Habakkuk's life is screaming, God has left the building, God is utterly powerless, or he's just plain cruel, abandon him. And only Habakkuk's faith tells him otherwise. You see, he is, he is confused by what God is doing. He does not understand God's answer, but in no way is he confused about who is in control. God may seem powerless, but he's in control. And Habakkuk puts it this way in verse 20. He says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. No matter what is happening, when we cannot explain it, we still know that God is on his throne and he will not leave it. When everything is burning down around us like it was for Habakkuk and for Christians throughout history, the righteous can say, God is in control. So let God be God. Let God be God. Which is hard for me. Because honestly, sometimes I want to be God. Sometimes, deep down, I think most of us have at least had this thought. It's like, I could be doing a better job than you right now. I mean, imagine if God were up for re-election right now. Think of all the, the fodder there would be for smear campaigns. The things we could hang on him that are his fault. The negative ads and the mailers, right? Where have you been for Ebola? Where have you been for genocide? Where have you been? What are you doing? It's hard to let God be God. And you can make this very personal. Look at your worst circumstance in your life right now. I don't know what that is. Uh, Cancer, sickness, infertility, depression, prodigal children, relational mess, you name it. Whatever it is. Can you look at it? And say, God is in control. And no matter what, I'm going to believe that he's got this. Because faith is not trusting God under the right circumstances. That's idolatry. Faith is trusting God with every, with any circumstance. Because God doesn't promise clarity. He does not promise easy answers. In fact, if you've noticed, God never even answers Habakkuk's questions directly. Habakkuk still does not know the why or the when of God's plans or purposes. God does not promise clarity, but he promises resolution. And resting in that knowledge, even when everything around you tells you otherwise, is letting God be God. And it's the only way our faith can survive in the waiting. But it's easier said than done. How do we hold on? to God's timing and to God's justice and to his sovereignty, his power, when we are given so little information about what's happening. And here's what gives us hope, I think, as Christians. We always have this hope in God's plan. And and Paul only hints at it in Galatians 4. Here's what he says. He says, but at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. And I find that passage so interesting because it says something profound about God's timing and God's power. Jesus came at a time and in a place and in a circumstance that none of us, even the smartest person in this room, would not have chosen. 
for the salvation of the world. First century Bethlehem, in Roman-occupied Palestine, two Jewish peasants have a son in a cow stall during an ethnic cleansing ordered by King Herod. That is the Christmas story. Paul, in Galatians, and God, through him, call this just the right time. And thank God we were not in charge, because this son and his story and his sacrifice are the gospel that we cling to, and it was God's timing and God's justice and God's power and control that accomplished it. So how do we wait now? Because we see in Jesus that God keeps his promises even when the how and the when make absolutely no sense. Because we see in Jesus that God can take the worst of our circumstances, a Babylonian invasion, the crucifixion of an innocent man, and use them to save the entire world. Because in Jesus, we see God entering the ambiguity of human faith that we feel and submitting to God's plan. He says, let this cup, let this crucifixion pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. That's the prayer of Habakkuk on the mouth of Jesus, God's son, before his crucifixion. Even Jesus, the son, had to let God, the father, be God. And I know it seems slow, Whatever baggage you brought with you this morning, we all brought something. Your confusion with God, your pain, your broken, whatever it is. I know God's answer seems slow. I know. And I can't tell you how God's going to fix it. I can't tell you when he will fix it. I can't tell you how he's using it in your life. I can't tell you any of that. And frankly, the Bible can't really tell you any of that either. But all the Bible says, and all that we have to cling to, is that God's plan is always, always, always worth the wait. Always. So hold on. Hold on to his promises. Hold on to Jesus who proves that God is worth waiting for. And I know it seems slow and I know it seems unfair and God may seem absent sometimes and it doesn't make sense, but wait for it. A day is coming at just the right time when our waiting will turn to rejoicing. So wait for it. Let's pray. Father, just like Habakkuk, we find ourselves in a life of waiting. Waiting on your promises to come true. Waiting on you to make wrong things right. And God, we confess that so often we don't want to wait <laughs> But that's what you've called us to. This is a part of your plan that we don't understand. But we trust you. And God, give us strength, give us power to wait and to stay in the watchtower for your response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.